Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning as we've gathered to worship our God together on this Reformation Day. And I'll say more about that here in just a little bit. On the back of your bulletins are the announcements. We will be having lunch together and then an afternoon service around 1.45. I would call your attention to next Saturday. It's the end of daylight savings time, which means it just, this is a good time. You get to fall back. All right? So make sure you turn your clocks back an hour for next. Is that right? Fall back? Okay. Some of you looked at me like, oh, really? I don't know. I guess that's a good thing. Spring ahead, fall back. I thought I had that right. So remember that on um, Saturday. And then you see the other announcements I would mention just once again that Beth has applied for membership here in the church. Her testimony is on the back table. And um, if you're a member of the church, I trust you've picked it up and read it. If you have any questions, see her. If they go unanswered, you can see me. And I would just set this out there so you'll know that usually we would bring her into membership next week, but she'll be away next week. So don't think she skipped out on us and we're not going to bring her in. We'll, we'll do it probably the second Sunday uh, of the month instead of the first. But we look forward to that. And, uh, but please, if you haven't, read her testimony there on the back table uh, before that time. All right, I believe that's all the announcements that I have. Well, I mentioned that this is the day that we sort of celebrate as Reformation Day. And we do that because back in October 31st, 1517, an obscure monk by the name of Martin Luther, desiring to spark a theological discussion over the medieval practice of selling indulgences, nailed 95 thesis to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. That happened some 505 years ago tomorrow. This spark, he set off, ignited a flame that spread across Europe and became known as the Protestant Reformation. By challenging the church authorities and its doctrine, Luther reclaimed for Christianity the central doctrine of the salvation by justification by faith alone. The Protestant Reformation was the proclamation of the justification doctrine that salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So began that Reformation. The Gospel concerning Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection as man's only hope of eternal life. And Martin Luther served as an example to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Will you just take a moment to prepare your hearts to worship God and especially give him thanks for so great a salvation that he has provided.
church tried to get Martin Luther to recant from those truths on the doctrine of justification, but he would not. He would say, here I stand, I can do no other. And he would often look to those verses found in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And is this that will be our call to worship this morning inside your bulletin, a responsive reading from the first three verses of Psalm 46. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now Martin Luther was a man who believed that church music was for everyone to sing. The devil, he said, the devil who is the originator of sorrow, anxiety, and restless troubles, flees, flees before the sound of God's music, almost as much as before the Word of God. And of course, the cry of the Reformation was a mighty fortress is our God. So take your Trinity hymn books and turn with me to hymn 81, the cry of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God.
Let us pray. God in heaven, we do thank you that you are our bulwark, our refuge in which we can run first and foremost for life, the giving of life that you give as you open our eyes to the truth and we see our sin and we can be saved. And then you go on to tell us and comfort us, reminding us that you will protect us no matter what we may go through in this world, that we can run to you and be protected. And we thank you for that. We pray that you'd be with all those who can't be with us this morning, whatever uh, things they are going through, give them comfort and peace and bring them back quickly to us. We pray as Pastor brings your word to us today that you would help us to understand more of your truth and that it would change our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now take your hymns of grace and turn over to 298. See the destined day arise, a hymn which speaks about Christ going to the cross for his people. For those of you who I have your email address, I sent you a copy of this hymn. We may have sung it once before, uh, but I know that all those who got my email have listened to it and are ready to sing it as well, I trust. So I'm going to have Rachel play it through once, and then we will sing it together. 298 in the Hymns of Grace.
As we continue through the New Testament, this morning we're reading from Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We'll be reading verses 1 through 31. Uh, this morning in Sunday school, we were reminded as we looked at sec- or, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it had been predestined by God for these people. We're getting into the crucifixion and the leading up to it this morning. These people were predestined to not fully understand the truth of God. And therefore, the crucifixion of Christ was carried out. But it was done for a purpose, and it was for uh, our good and for Christ's glory. And we see that contrast this morning as we read about the woman who um, anoints Jesus. She seems to understand the truth of God, whereas Judas and those who are plotting against Christ do not. Um, So I just thought I would bring that up. But let us read verses 1 through 31 of Mark chapter 14. Two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the chief priests and the experts in the law were trying to find a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, so they won't, there won't be a riot among the people. Now while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, a woman came and with an alabaster jar of costly aromatic oil from pure nard, After breaking open the jar, she poured it on his head. But some who were present indignantly said to one another, Why this waste of expensive ointment? It could have been sold for more than 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor. So they spoke angrily to her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, and you can do good for them whenever you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And this morning we have fulfilled that promise that Christ gave. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to portray Jesus into his hands. When they heard this, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples said to him, Where do you want to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples left, went to the city, and found these things just as he had told them, And they prepared the Passover. Then, when it was evening, he came to the house with the twelve. While they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me will betray me. They were distressed, and one of 
One said to him, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips his hand with me into the bowl. For the same man, for the Son of Man, will go as it is written about him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It is it would be better for him if he had never been born. While they were eating he took bread, and after giving thanks he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many. I will tell you the truth. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, I will tell you the truth. Today, this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all of them said the same thing. This morning as we had a prayer, once again, we want to remember Philip and Abigail Perkins who were laboring there in Indonesia. They're now home in the States. We read their letter this past Wednesday night. They're here for a while dealing with some personal issues that need to be dealt with and taken care of. But we do want to pray for them that their heart's desire is to go back and we will wait upon God to see what happens, but let us seek our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are filled with gratitude this morning as we give you thanks for so great a salvation. We thank you for your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for your grace, for it is only by Your grace that any of us are saved. We're thankful for Your work in our lives by Your Spirit that would awaken us to the need of a Savior. And thank You for the granting unto us that faith and repentance that we might know Your Son and that we might be reconciled to You. Father, we bless You and praise Your holy name for such a great gospel. And Father, we pray that we might be diligent in sharing that gospel with others concerning the work of Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And Father, how we pray that You would open blind eyes and cause men to see their sin and see how they stand at enmity with God. And yet You had such great love that You sent Your Son a son who lived his perfect life and yet went to the cross taking our sins upon himself. Father, we're thankful for his righteousness that is then accounted to us. Father, how we pray that you might bless the proclamation of that gospel, that we might see your kingdom ever expanding 
as men and women and boys and girls see their need of a Savior and come to Him in faith. Father, we've been reminded this past week of the reality that our lives are but a vapor that's here for a little while as we have witnessed the death of a couple people who have been a part of this church at one time or another or in one way or another. Father, we pray that each of us might live in that reality that we don't know what a day may bring forth. That, Father, we would be ready for that day when we too will pass through death's door. May we know something of that which the Apostle Paul speaks when he says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Father, may we eagerly await that day when we will be in your presence and worshiping you as we ought. Father, we would pray as well this morning that you would be with the Perkins. Pray that you would watch over them, care for them. We pray that you would help them in their relationship to one another, that they would have a relationship that is pleasing in your sight. We pray that you would help them as parents, that they would bring up their children in the fear and admonition of our Lord. We pray that during these days that their home, there will be blessed days, good days that they will look back upon. And though they be difficult days, bless you for the way that you've worked in their hearts and lives and done them good. Father, we pray today for wherever your word is preached and proclaimed that you might bless. We think of our own area here in Lenaway County and in northern Michigan, northern Ohio. And Father, we pray that we would see you do a work that only you can do, that you would awaken men to their sin, and we would see a revival around us as men come to know Christ. Therefore, we pray that you might bless even this day our time in your word to draw us ever closer to you. May the Spirit come among us and may He, Father, have dealings with us as Your Word goes forth. We pray, Father, that we would be far more than just hearers of the Word, but that we would be doers. Help us, we pray, as we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now before we come to open the Word of God, let's take our Trinity hymn books Turning to 421, 421, that familiar hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, 421, Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand together as we sing.
seated. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. You might recall that in His Sermon on the Mount, our Lord said to His hearers, You have heard it said that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. You see, it's with this statement that Jesus was going after the so-called religious leaders of His day who had invented all kinds of clever ways of working around the intention for God's Word. You see, these religious leaders came up with ways of harboring bitterness and hatred towards their neighbors while claiming that they were innocent in connection with the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. They were going around saying they were not guilty of breaking that command because they've never taken someone's life. And Christ is telling them that the Sixth Commandment has a broader scope than simply not taking someone's life. If you're angry with someone, you've broken the Sixth Commandment. If you hate someone, you've broken the Sixth Commandment. If you've mistreated someone, you've broken the Sixth Commandment. That was what Christ was teaching. J.C. Ryle says this concerning our Lord's words. Many thought... They have kept this part of God's law, that is the Sixth Commandment, so long as they did not commit murder. And the Lord Jesus shows that its requirement goes much further than that. It condemns all anger, passionate language, especially when used without a cause. Let us mark this well we may perfectly be innocent of taking away life and yet be guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment. That's what our Lord taught. And when we come to Deuteronomy 21, that's exactly the message that Moses is stressing. His desire was 
that as the children of Israel go into this promised land, that they would be a different people. They would be different than those who occupied the land. And one of the ways in which their distinction would be witnessed is the great value that they place upon human life. And so last week we began looking at what Moses had to say here in Deuteronomy 21. And I mentioned to you last week that there are four different scenarios that set forth the broader scope of the Sixth Commandment. And though I had high hopes, you might recall, of getting through all four of the scenarios, we did make it through the first one. And so in your bulletin, if you're looking at that outline, I've at least started with point number one, which is the unsolved murder that we looked at last week. The unsolved murder. And in this scenario, the people of God were taught the great value that God places upon human life. And the guilt and shame and the stain that falls upon a nation where there is the shedding of innocent blood. Therefore, when such an event takes place, we should be diligent to confess sin as a nation and seek the forgiveness of God. So scenario number one, the unsolved murder. Now I tried to be realistic this week. And we're only going to look at the next two, I hope, this morning. The second scenario is what I've called the disadvantaged woman. The disadvantaged woman. And we read up this scenario starting in verse 10 and, and going down through verse 14. Follow as I read. Deuteronomy 21, starting at verse 10. And when you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive... And see among them, uh, see among the captives, a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house, and you shall shave her head, and trim her nails, and she shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, and shall remain in your house and mourn for her father and mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money you shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. Now granted, oftentimes as we read through a passage like this, we recognize that we do not practice such things in our day. But, but 
Moses is saying when when you enter the promised land to the children of Israel, you're to be distinct from the others. And one of the ways in which you're to be distinct is in this scenario that I'm setting before you. So first of all, let's look at the scenario explained. The scenario explained. We have them in the midst of a battlefield. They're, they're, they're engaged in warfare. When, when you enter into that land, there will be times of warfare. And you've got to realize that in ancient times, the point of warfare was this, to ruin the city. It was to ruin the city. You might recall that our Lord has said that all that is in the city, all its spoils, you shall take as booty for yourselves, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you, and you shall utterly destroy them. That was true for all nations. When they went into warfare, it was to utterly destroy the enemy. Now, for most nations, the ruin of the city would entail looting, destroying, and killing the men. And then mistreating the women and the children. The desire often in warfare by many nations would be to take the losing army and have those men watch as you mistreated their wives and their children. That was the common practice of the day. And Moses is telling the children of Israel, you're going to do things differently. Your behavior will not be like that. Now, as, as we read these instructions of Moses, we assume that the war was justified. Remember in previous chapters, back in chapter 20, Moses said, when you go into the land, there will be opposition. And when the opposition rises up against you, that you're to say, listen, we want peace. We, we don't want to go to war. But if they insisted, then you go to war. And you fight against them. And so it is assumed that as Moses is speaking about this warfare, that he's speaking about a time of battle which was a justified battle in the eyes of God. Because notice even the wording of this, verse 10, And the Lord your God delivers them into your hand. And so you're, you're to fight this battle, and you end up taking the women and the children... But you're not going to mistreat them. You're not going to be unkind to them. Other nations might do that. There might be a warfare rape that takes place. 
Because they want, as the opposite, soldiers are dying. They want them to see the women being taken and mistreated. But Israel, you're not to do that. In fact, as you take the women and children and you see a woman who's a a beautiful woman who's been taken captive and you think to yourself, I would like that woman to be my woman. There's a procedure that you must follow. First of all, you're to bring her home. She would leave the city where she lived and she would now come among you and your community. And she would live in your home. That is, with your parents, your siblings, and other family members. She would partake in being a part of your family, which if you think about it, would be a wonderful blessing. She would become a part of a family that, that would catechize their children and teach their children about loving God with all their hearts and all their souls and all their minds. They would treat her with dignity. She would in all likelihood be staying in the woman's residence. Right? When it says bring her home, doesn't mean I'm going to take her to my place. But she would probably take him, live with the family, live among the women's residents. So the procedure began by bringing her into the family dwelling. The next step would be to give her a time of mourning. Of mourning. She's lost a lot. She's lost her country. She, she's lost her brother her father, you're to shave her head, trim her nails, put aside the clothes of her land. You're, you're, you're to do these very things. It was an indicator of a change in her identity. she would be given an opportunity to die to her old life. She was given an opportunity to mourn. She would mourn for her father and her mother. And that would go on for a full month, for 30 days. And during this time, there would be a focus upon putting away the old life and beginning a new life. Again, what, what kindness that this woman would have been given. She was even given the opportunity of grieving her loss. And though she at one time was part of a pagan culture, and though she would be a stranger to the children of Israel, and though she even would probably have worshipped false gods, 
she would be treated with respect and kindness. And it is then only after that that the Israelite man would be allowed to take her as his wife. After that, the Word says, you may go into her and be her husband. This was also not a demand, but it was a request. It doesn't say you're to go in, you're to take her, grab her, and force her to be your wife. She was given the opportunity even to say, I don't want that. But only after all that, she was and could become your wife. And she was not, listen, she was not to be considered a prize of warfare. You know how some men, when they've been in war, they come back and they've got something that belonged to the enemy and they say, look what, this is my prize. This is what I got. No, she's not to be treated in that way. But if the woman accepts, she does become his wife. But then Moses goes on in this scenario. With the prospect of divorce taking place. Notice verse 14. And it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go. Now, let me say this. This is not saying, okay, if you take her as your wife, and then, you know what, you've decided, she just doesn't make me happy anymore. You know, we hear that on occasion. I'm going to divorce my wife. She doesn't make me happy anymore. Or, I'm going to divorce my wife. We've fallen out of love. That's not what's being said here. In all likelihood, when it says you no longer delight in her, it points to offenses that destroy the marriage. She's done something, some grievous behavior of some type, that now destroys the marriage. So you put her away. Now notice, she is still to be treated with respect. She is not to be treated as a piece of property that you rule over and even seek to sell for a profit. 
It shall be that if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes, but you shall certainly not sell her for money. Or shall you shall not mistreat her because you've humbled her. And by that, Moses is saying, here's a woman who, who has left family. She's lost her nation. She's had to change her identity. She didn't always stand with you. She worshipped a pagan god. She left all that, and you brought her as a captive into the land and made her your wife. And then she committed some grievous offense, and, and you put her away. But you treat her with dignity. That would distinguish you from all the other nations. Well, that's what we have here. So what do we take from all that? What do we learn? What conduct is encouraged? And I believe the conduct that's encouraged is this. This scenario should lead us to consider others' situation when they are displaced or at a disadvantage or, or when they go through difficulties, when their life is turned upside down. If we submit to the Sixth Commandment, then we'll be there to help. We'll be there to be kind. We'll be there for benevolence and aid. What happens when someone around us speaks with a different accent than we speak with? Are we kind? Or do we mistreat? What happens when someone is in need of help who does not worship the true and the living God, but, but they stand in legitimate need of help? How do we respond? Are, are we a distinct people? We can cry out against abortion. But where are we when it comes to helping young ladies who find themselves unmarried with a pregnancy and she thinks her only way out is to have an abortion? Where are we as a church? What are we going to do? What happens if someone comes in among us with a checkered past? With a rap sheet as long as my arm. Who has a bad reputation in the community. Who doesn't speak the same religious language that we might speak. How do we respond? 
Well, I hope they sit on the other side of the auditorium at least. Or are we willing to recognize these are human beings made in the image of God with particular needs that maybe God has brought them among us that that we might minister unto them for good. Listen, I've heard the argument over and over again. You conservatives, you Christians, you cry out against abortion and all that, but what are you doing to help this girl who thinks there's no answer, I'm stuck in this, and therefore I'm going to abort the child. Are we willing to help? Part of obeying the Sixth Commandment is treating others with dignity. Even when they're not like us, even when, humanly speaking, we might be offended by some of their behavior. So what are we going to do? Remember in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, our Lord was speaking to a, a lawyer, of all people, and says to them that, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. You remember what the lawyer said? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a parable about a man who's traveling along and he's beat up by robbers and thieves and he's left for dead. And a Levite comes along. A religious leader comes along and says, I'm sorry you've gone through this. I don't have time. And he goes on. A priest comes by. I don't have time. He goes on. Finally, there's a Samaritan. A Samaritan would look down upon a Jew and a Jew would look down upon a Samaritan. But this Samaritan stops and he bandages his wounds and he places him upon his donkey and he takes him to the nearest town and he sees that he's taken care of. And our Lord says, there's my neighbor. There's my neighbor. He is the hurting man in a rough part of town from a different ethnic group who needed compassion. He's my neighbor. He's a hurting man in a rough part of town from a different ethnic group who is in need of compassion. So maybe we have some prejudices we need to deal with. And maybe we need to be more ready to show kindness and compassion to those who are in need, who may not look like us, speak like us, talk like us. And some of us may have the attitude, well, why should I help them? 
of all. Why should I stoop to their... Why, why should I be involved in their life? Why should I show compassion to the neediest of the need? Why should I do that? Well, if I'm talking to believers, you need to do that because, you know, there was one who showed such compassion to you who did not deserve it. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He left all the glories of heaven and stooped and became a human. And He lived on this earth. He he left the, the wonderful glories of heaven in order to be here on earth and, and, and to smell the stench of, of, of the city and, and, and see the, the various events, sad events that took place. And He did that in order that He might be our Savior. Listen, God loved us in that while we were ungodly, He sent His Son to die for us. Who better than us? To show pity and compassion and kindness to those in need. Perhaps circumstances they did not see themselves in, but now traveling through. That's part of being obeying that sixth commandment. It's not enough that you say to the man without a coat, I hope you get a coat. It's not enough to say to the person without food, I hope you find food. But as we have opportunity and legitimacy, we ought to be there to help them in their time of need. For that's what my Savior did for me. And I'm like, yeah, listen. I've been to Jackson a couple of times this past week. And and I pulled up at a stoplight. And, you know, the guy's standing there. I need money. And my first thoughts are, well, then go get a job. Isn't it? I mean, that's me. Where I really don't know his story. Who knows what he went through? What he's going through. Now, are there those who will take advantage of that? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. But we ought not to be so quick to judge those who are in need. So that if an unwed mother walks through those doors, our first thoughts were, you lived a wicked lifestyle. Our first thoughts ought to be, we want to show you mercy and kindness so that you will see the mercy and the kindness of our God. But we're quick to think the negative. At least I am. At least I am. Well, that's the second scenario. Quickly through the third scenario. Hold on to your seats. All right. It's what I'm calling the the vulnerable individuals. In verses 15 to 17, we read about them. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both loved and the unloved have borne him sons, If the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. 
But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. <laughs> Don't you love these scenarios? <laughs> all right. Here's a guy who has two wives. Just to explain the scenario a bit. Here's a man who has two wives and a son by both wives. Now, the son of the first wife was the man's firstborn. But we're told that he, he loved the second wife and did not love the first wife. So the firstborn son belongs to the first wife. You got this down? Now, the man would desire to do what? To please the second wife. And one of the ways that he maybe is beginning to think is, I would really please my second wife if I would give her son the firstborn's inheritance. You see, the firstborn son, the, the law was the firstborn son would receive a double portion of the inheritance of their father. So, so if a man has three children, he would divide his portion, his inheritance, four ways. And to the firstborn son, he would give a double portion, and then the second would get a portion, and the third would get a portion. But this man's thinking something like this. I'll give my second wife's son the double portion because I love her. And so he's making a decision based on his feelings, based upon his passion. In this scenario, the only reason the father would favor the second son is because the father loved the second son's mother. Raymond Brown says in his commentary, the interpretation of God's law cannot possibly be at the mercy and the whims of human emotions. What God has said must be done whatever the feeling of the man and his new wife. You see, here was a man who knew what God has said, but he believed his passions and his feelings overruled the command of God. And the only reason that the firstborn would not receive a double portion is because of how the man feels, not because of how the Word of God directs. So what do we learn from this? Now, first of all, let me say that God never approved of polygamy. He never approved of having two wives. So don't walk out of here saying, well, we read a passage and they gave him instructions with regard to having two wives. It must be okay. God never approved of such a thing. But, but here's a scenario. It happened. 
And so the conduct that is encouraged is this. It ought to lead the people of God to subdue their passions and their feelings, which tend to unjustly mistreat the lives of others. We need to die to our passions and feelings when it tends to do unjustly to the lives of others. When we are moved by how we feel, instead of by the Word of God, we've broken the Sixth Commandment. The commandment is, do good to all men. And sometimes we may say, but I don't like them. I don't like them. They're a different color than I am. They come from a different ethnic background than I do. They're not as well financially off as I might be. I might be more educated than they are. And therefore, how we treat someone is based upon our feelings, not upon what God's Word said. Jesus Christ, again, is a wonderful example of of what this means. Remember when he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cries out to God. He's all alone and he cries out to God, Father, let this cup pass from me. He was expressing to the Father, listen, if if I don't need to go to the cross, I I don't want to go to the cross. If if I don't need to, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to take sin upon myself. I, I, I don't even comprehend how awful that would be. Do not allow this to happen, but not my will, thine be done. Christ was determined to do the will of God no matter how He felt. No matter how much He wished things might be different. So here's a man who keeps that from his son because of his own passion. There there would everything being equal, the only reason the firstborn did not receive or would not receive a double inheritance is simply because of this man's feeling, not because it was something that was right. And here we're reminded, here we are reminded that we need to care for those. We need to care for those who may be different than us. We need to care for those who are most vulnerable. Well, this is part of obeying the Sixth Commandment. Now here's my question. How many of us are like the religious leaders of Christ's day saying, I'm not guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment. You ever mistreated somebody? Have you ever judged somebody that you didn't know simply because of the way they looked? 
Have you been indifferent to helping someone in their time of need because they may have a checkered past? You ever look down upon somebody because they don't dress as well as you do? Now, which one of us can say, I've never broken the sixth commandment? I stand guilty. I stand guilty. I don't say that with a badge of honor. I'm embarrassed to stand here and tell you, I have done these things. And I'm guilty of breaking God's sixth commandment. And therefore, I deserve the wrath of God. But blessed be God by His grace. He brought me to see my sin and brought me to see that there's a way in which that sin can be forgiven and I can be reconciled to God and that comes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Through the Gospel. It's my only hope. It's a wonderful Gospel. I mean... this week has been a challenging week. I went to a funeral Monday. I helped conduct a funeral Friday. I conducted a funeral Saturday. That can be challenging. It can be exhausting. But as I put my head on the pillow down put my head on the pillow last night, I just thought But what an opportunity. I had the opportunity to share the gospel with those who were confronted with the reality of death. (laughs) That there's forgiveness. And you can be reconciled. You can be ready to walk through death's door. You don't need to fear death. But it only comes through Jesus Christ. What, What a wonderful gospel to proclaim. And how thankful we as the people of God ought to be that God does forgive as we call upon Him and believe upon His Son. There's forgiveness with God. You can't walk away from the Sixth Commandment and say, I'm innocent. I don't think. You meet me at the back door and you tell me, I... I'm one of the innocent ones. I've No, I've never broken that commandment. And then I'm going to follow you around for a little while and see how that goes. <laughs> so some of you are saying, I'm not going to tell you that. I don't want you following me. All right. Uh, we're guilty. But God forgives. God's a God of grace. And how we bless Him for that. Well, I got through two of them. One to go. God willing, next week we'll look at that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your grace as as we read of these things and consider these things together. Father, the, the, the lessons and the principles laid out surely show us our guilt. We've been guilty of mistreating others, judging others wrongly, not seeking to be a benefit or show compassion. Father, we're thankful for Your grace that forgives and pray that 
hearing these things would only stir us up more to desire to do good to others. That we would show kindness. That we would not abuse those we come in contact with. Father, we pray that the Word of God have an effect upon our lives as we live in this world. And that, Father, You would be pleased to use us to shine as lights in the midst of darkness, to be a, a peculiar people, a distinct people, even because of the way that we treat others. Help us, we pray, and be glorified through it all. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I have confessed to you in the past that as I'm going through some of these things, I mean, I'm sitting at my desk, okay, I've got a, a, a man who takes it captive as a wife and, and not to sell her, and then I've got a guy who's got two wives and two sons, and, and man, what do we do with this? I believe that all of Scripture is profitable, and I believe that we need to preach it expositorily, so I've got to preach it. I mean, part of me says, let's just skip over this page. But, uh, but the words keep coming back. At my desk, more often than not, those words of ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. It's that hymn that's found in the Hymns of Grace 365, 365. And it's my prayer that as we look at these ancient words, these ancient practices, that they would teach us and instruct us so that we might be a people pleasing in the sight of our God. 365 in the hymn's grace. Let's stand together as we sing.
head at my desk, it is my prayer. Lord, these ancient words, may they change me and may they change the people that I have the opportunity of sharing them with. Ancient words, ever true. You are the